Well, it is good to have everybody in front of me instead of some people behind me and beside me and so forth. But great blessing here. Um, you notice the passage we read from Joel <coughs> chapter 2. Well, in Acts chapter 2, previous to where I read, um, Peter, this was the day of Pentecost, and in his sermon, he literally quoted exactly what Jonathan read from Joel and said, what you heard the prophet Joel speak, what he uttered, this is coming to pass. It's right before you. These words are coming. This prophecy is unfolding before your very eyes. And so eventually I want to try my best to expound on all of that. But thinking through the fact that Joel was prophesying the beginning of the church age, then I went ahead and jumped forward into Acts here at the end of chapter 2, at the end of after Peter's sermon and after people had been brought into the kingdom through faith in the message preached, in the birth of the church, so to speak, I wanted to kind of highlight that and then it'll be a context for us to go back and look at Joel 2 again in the beginning of this chapter 2 in Acts, if that hopefully makes sense to you and doesn't confuse you. <laughs> but, and the other thing was, I looked at my sermon notes, and on March the 3rd, I mean March the 15th, 2015, I preached this sermon at Luther Ranch worship service, and some of you were there, and that was when we finally had sort of decided, okay, we're going to do our best if the Lord wills and allows us to plant a church, we're going to start moving in that direction. And so I preached this sermon from these verses on that day to kind of help propel us toward that and be thinking, really, what is a church? What should it look like and what should we be aiming at if we're going to plant a church? Because we don't um, really know. We've never done it. And so we were looking to the scripture. So I thought, how fitting today we're meeting for the first time in this new place that Lord has provided for us. Um, what is that, some seven years later? And thank the Lord we haven't folded up. We haven't uh, disappeared. In fact, there's a lot of new faces, which is a glorious thing. So my guess is those of you who were there in 2015 won't remember any of the things I said, and so this will be brand new. And many of you weren't there, so this will really be new to you. So uh, I know how that works. Hey. I'm not fooled into thinking that y'all remember everything I say. So, um, and, and that's probably a good thing because it allows me to correct myself from time to time. So, I already mentioned this, but we refer to Acts chapter 2, the entire scene at Pentecost, as the birth of the church. Now, not in the sense that this was something totally new, out of the blue, like the birth of a child, for example, when there was no child and then there was no existence and then there was conception development and birth of a human that hadn't existed prior to that time it's not the birth of the church in that sense it's something brand spanking new that nobody ever heard of or saw coming this something new was a coming forth from the old in other words it was the plan of god coming to fruition that which was promised even all the way back in genesis chapter 3 in the garden at the fall, right after the fall, God announced there would be this 
future occurrence, a future person, this battle, this thing will come to pass. And in Genesis 15, this promise he made to Abraham, all of this, and you follow it through the Old Testament all the way to Acts chapter 2, that which was promised, God brings to fruition. We get glimpses of it, for example, in Jeremiah 31. In 31, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law in their inward parts and write in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. It's that that's coming, birthing, if you will, in Acts chapter 2. The everlasting covenant spoken of by Ezekiel. In fact, if we just back up a little bit to verse 23, I didn't read, but Peter says in this sermon that brings about these 3,000 souls being converted to Christianity. He says to them, this Jesus of Nazareth, this Jesus we've been reading about and singing about this morning, this Jesus of Nazareth, him, he was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. And you have taken him and crucified him and put him to death. Now that's an interesting thought. The King James says, by the determinate counsel, you took Jesus and crucified him. I want to break that down real quickly. This determined purpose of God. Determined means to mark out boundaries or limits. In other words, to a point. It is determined. Much like in Acts 17 where the Bible says, God has made from one blood every nation men to dwell on the face of the earth. And he has determined or appointed their predetermined, pre-appointed times and boundaries and their dwellings. So where you live right now is no secret or surprise to God. All of it's been predetermined. And then all the events leading up to this very day of Pentecost and the birth of the church, Peter says, all that was determined or marked out or appointed by God. This was the boundaries that God himself had set up. There used to be a big argument. Who actually killed Jesus? Was it the Romans or the Jews? And the first time I heard anybody, it was R.C. Sproul who came forth and said, neither. It was God the Father who killed Jesus. Everybody else just played a part in God's predetermined plan. Now, sometimes that's hard to grasp if you're not used to looking at um, life in all the occurrences in this world as being predetermined by God. But that's what the Bible teaches us. And it even goes further and compounds this thought that these appointed boundaries that God had predetermined, it says he predetermined them by his foreknowledge. Now, foreknowledge is a great word in the Bible. It's not used very often. But here in this, in the book of Acts, it's in the noun form, and it means simply a forethought or a prearrangement. It's where we get our word prognosis. Now, we all know that because we go to the doctor and he'll give us a prognosis, right? And a prognosis is sort of a forethought of what he thinks will come to pass. It's used only one other time in the New Testament besides in Acts. And it's there in 1 Peter verse 1-2 that we are called the elect of God according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It's a word that's used only to describe divine knowledge in the Bible. It's unique to God. I think this is one reason 
that humans have such a hard time wrapping their minds around predestination and foreknowledge. It's a divine word. God has divine foreknowledge. We don't. So we have difficulty wrapping our brains around how that works. But in its verb form, that same word that we get our word prognosis from means to have knowledge beforehand. In, in its verb form of action, it means to predestinate and to foreordain. So our doctor can have a foreknowledge to assess situations and possible outcomes, but God has foreknowledge because he determined the outcome. The doctor can be wrong, God will never be, in other words. We see this thought, in fact, in this word in Romans 8, 29. For whom God foreknew, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son. So I say all that to point out that what Peter is pointing to is the fact that this new entity, this organism, if you will, this church is really not new at all, but has been in the heart and mind of God for all eternity. And I know that you all agree with me in that. We teach this all the time. But it's very reassuring if you think about it in these terms. Just like the fate of Jesus Christ was ultimately not in the hands of lawless men, neither is yours or mine. That's good news. So when we pray for the persecuted church and we look at these people who are dying for the faith, the world will look and say, that's a waste. Why would you do that? Because it's been predetermined by God or else it won't happen. Because, you know, many, many of those standing around watched Jesus Christ die and had to say to themselves, if not out loud, this is a waste. Why would this man die? We've never seen this man do anything wrong. We know he never did anything wrong. He never sinned, yet he died. Because the fate of this man named Jesus was predetermined by God. Our fate, praise God, is not in the hands of lawless men. But our fate is in the hands of a merciful and loving God who is merciful and gracious. And as Joel describes him and Moses described him and even the psalmist described him, he is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. That's our God. It may have struck you in our catechism reading the very last sentence. Is God happy with the angry, uh, angry with the wicked? And it quotes the Bible. He is angry with the wicked every day. He is, but he is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And the psalmist goes ahead and describes it even further in Psalm 103. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. This is for us, church, you who believe in Christ. We are sinners like every other human, but as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. And that's good news. As a result of the foreknowledge of God, men and women are now coming to repentance. And this is where we are in Acts chapter 2. Turning to God from their sin. 
knowing the Lord, as prophesied in the Old Testament, so that all who call on the name of the Lord are being saved. But notice, when God saves repentant sinners, they are purchased not only out of sin and eternity in hell, but they are purchased into his gathering called the church. And that's where we find ourselves in Acts chapter 2. The term church. It's used about 25 times in the book of Acts, about 118 times throughout the New Testament. This is what we are. We are the church. If you believe in Christ, if he has saved you from your sin and you've repented and turned from your sin and turned to him away from your idols, whatever they may be, whether it's yourself or a real idol or you're worshiping a false god or you just know nothing and you just are wondering, who do I worship? And you turn from that to God because of Jesus Christ. He what the Bible calls, saves you. He saves you from sin and hell and death and saves you unto life and brings you into his family, adopts you, makes you his child, puts you in the church. There's no, and I'll, I'll get a little more into this, there is no recognition or understanding in the Bible of a saved, born-again person who is not part of the church. There's not even a term in the Bible to describe a person like that. The Bible only knows saved and lost. And when you're saved, you're in the church. I think we need to constantly highlight that rather than try to just uh, beat people up and say, you need to go to church. You need to go to church. There's nothing magical about gathering, but there's something divine about the fact that you've been saved out of sin and put into the family of God. And for that reason, God would have you gather with the saints together. And I know I say this a lot, but all over the world where persecution is real, you read testimonies of those who are put into solitary confinement, taken away from their family, taken away from their other believers, the thing that they most often cite as missing the most is gathering with the church. They miss it. It's who we are. So this term church, what does it mean? Maybe you've heard somebody say this because in the last 10 or 15 years, it's been popular to try to use Greek language since the New Testament is written in Greek. But you may have heard this word. It's, it's the word, the term ecclesia. We get our word ecclesiology from it. How we do church, ecclesiology from ecclesia. It's made of two words, one meaning out of and the other one meaning to call. So the church is consists consists of those who are the called out ones. Again, I've just said this: called out from the world, called out from your sin by God to be saved to be part of the church. So you're not only called out of something, you're called into something. In fact, Peter says in verse 39, previous to where we begin reading, this promise of this Savior Christ is to you and to your children. And to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Again, that passage I quoted from Romans 8. We know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whoever he foreknew, he predestined and conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whoever he predestined, he called who he called, he justified who he justified, he glorified. Church 
is made up of those who have been called out by God. But next, notice, in our passage, beginning in verse 41, those who God calls, they gladly receive his word. Remember, Jesus in John 6 said, everyone that the Father sends to me will come to me, and everyone who comes to me, I will receive, and I will in no wise cast out, but I will raise them up in the last day. It's a great promise. If God calls you, you will come to Jesus, and Jesus will not reject you. And everyone who gladly received his word, because they were called by God, were baptized, and then they continued in the apostles' doctrine. They continued in the fellowship of the brethren and the sisters together, in the breaking of the bread and prayers. So real quickly, what can we say is the minimum to describe a church? What does it take to have a church? Because it takes a lot more than just deciding we're going to start a church. We're going to find a place and we're going to meet together. So what is the minimum? And this is kind of where this sermon went all those years ago. What has to happen in order for us to be a church? First of all, the church is never a building in the New Testament. It's always a group of people. It's those, as I've said, have been called by God, who have received his word, who have been baptized. Now, sometimes they're referred to in a general sense, like in Ephesians chapter 1, when he describes the church as the body and the fullness of him who fills all in all. Oftentimes it's referred to in the New Testament, referring to a specific group like the church in Jerusalem or the church of God in Corinth or the church churches in Asia. Sometimes even in people's houses. Colossians 4, Paul writes to Nympha and the church in her house. In 1 Corinthians 6, Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. But again, it's more than just a group of people to meet together. If we go back to all the things we've just been talking about, we'd have to agree that the minimum of a church, to be a church, is a group of people called out by God who respond in faith, who gladly receive that calling and are baptized. Then they prove that calling and salvation by continuing together in the apostles' doctrine that we read. What's the apostles' doctrine? It was based on what the prophets taught, like what Joel taught and many other prophets, and what Jesus taught. So basically, to study the apostles' doctrine is to study Scripture. And they not only continued in those things, but they continued in fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. So at a minimum, church has to be defined as a group of people who trust in Christ for salvation. They are baptized. They meet together often under God-ordained leadership. Elders to study the teaching of Scripture, to fellowship together to share the Lord's Supper together, which we'll do in a few minutes, and to pray together. It's got to be those things, and I think it can be nothing less than that. Other things are important. You might say, well, what about missions or disciple-making? All of that's wrapped up in studying the Apostles' Doctrine. If you do those things, then you will produce disciples. You'll have to be about missions. You'll have to be about preaching the gospel and seeing people born again because you're following the apostles' doctrine, the teaching of scripture. Too often churches try to start out and make 
something their goal other than this. And it can be good things. We're going to be all about missions. We're going to be all about community. We're going to be all about uh, reaching people. All those things are important. But the very foundation, we've got to be a people who meet together under ordained leadership, under the teaching of the Word of God, to fellowship, commune together, and to break bread, observe the ordinances of the church, and to pray together. All these other things blossom from that. Somebody explained it to me this way. It's like in farming. If you want healthy crops, the best way to get a healthy crop is to feed the soil and make the soil healthy. You can buy the best plants and the best seeds in the world, and if your soil is unhealthy, you won't have a crop. In other words, feed the soil and you'll produce healthy crops. The story here in Acts chapter 2 is a formula for creating healthy soil, if you will. Save people who are baptized, who meet together and often, often to study the scripture for the purpose of putting the scripture to work in our lives. That purifies the soil, so to speak, and will naturally produce the fruit that will glorify God. If we have something else as our aim first, we'll be pursuing that instead of pursuing what God has ordained to be the church. And first and foremost, and I know I say this often, and I really believe it, the church more than anything needs to know who God is. So often, I see so many people that claim to be Christians and they don't understand the most fundamental of doctrine, the most fundamental worldview of Christianity because they really don't know who God is. They feel like they have to defend God and make him something he's not. For example, like I mentioned earlier, we don't want to say God's angry with the wicked every day. We don't even want to say things like God um, um, loved one child and hated the other child. We read it in scripture. What do we mean? God doesn't hate. God doesn't God doesn't um, show himself like that, but he does. He is loving and merciful and gracious and kind and patient. He's also just and wrathful. He is God. And we need to respect him for that. And we need to study who he is, who he claims to be he is. And then we don't have to apologize for that. But even when we talk about these things about God that aren't comfortable, we can do it in a loving way. I don't have to prove anything by that. In fact, my aim and goal in telling you that God is wrathful and just and angry with the wicked is so that you'll repent and be receiving the loving, gracious, and merciful side of God. We need to know who he is so that when we meet together, we'll know why we're meeting together. When we fellowship around the ordinance of baptism, we fellowship around the ordinance of the supper. We do so because we worship our God and we know that he's a God of truth. A church that is obediently following scripture will evangelize and they will be mission-minded and they will make disciples. 
can't skip all the steps that the scripture gives to us to try to be what God wants us to be. Because what's most important to God outside of truth is the church. That's what Christ will return for. We sang that a while ago. When he comes back on a glorious day, he's coming for the church. God's plan to evangelize the world is not a mission organization, but it's the church. God's plan to destroy evil, which he has done, and overcome sin, is the church. The very thing that will be that will prevail at the end of time and be presented to Christ as spotless and without blemish is the church. So what we need is a healthy church. And this is was the point of me preaching this those years ago. How will we be healthy? We'll be healthy when we follow this plan. It's pretty simple. It's laid out right there. What's the church look like? Save people who gather together under the leadership ordained by God, teach the message of God, which is the scripture. We pray together and we fellowship together and we have the supper together. Healthy church will produce healthy disciples, which in turn will continue to produce healthy disciples and will produce more churches. And that's our hope and aim and goal. And you know what? I praise God it hasn't changed in seven years. And I see that, I hope you see that God seems to be faithfully leading us in that direction. Giving us like-minded believers. People with the same goal. That one accord. As they met together. They had the same goals in mind, the same aim. It's important. I hope you want to be a part of something like that. Thought of that is exciting to me, even still. I'm trusting that God will continue to grow us in that way. Continue to save his people and bring some of them to us. And we can teach them and get them ready to go out. Because we need more churches that are like-minded, healthy. I hope you see that. We'll look back at Joel next time I'm here and try to expound upon this a little more. But uh, I thought it was a good time just to back up and be reminded of that today. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. I do thank you for this fellowship that you have brought together, that you have made. God, I pray that we'll stay faithful and continue to pursue the things that we see in Acts. We'll continue to pursue the pure, basic, essential elements of the church. And that when we get off course, you will correct us and bring us back. God, help us to know more of, of you, your attributes. And Lord, just teach us to be the children of God. Grow us in holiness. Continue to cause us to hate our sin and turn from it. And God, continue to bless our families in this church. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.